Welcome to Hot Yoga Radio this fine Wednesday, uh, August the 4th, 2021. This is going to be a, another podcast in our series, Interesting Times. And it's going to deal with notions of freedom, and particularly the toxic notions of freedom that uh, the right-wing media have been uh, propagating and attempting to insert into the common sense for the last half a century, at least. In keeping with the, the general thrust of our interesting times brief, I'm going to actually reflect on some very current affairs and attempt to locate those and analyse those from a what you might loosely call a philosophical perspective. In other words, I'm going to try to take a bigger picture to uh, derive some analytical tools uh, from the philosophical canon and to attempt to bring a bit of clarity into what's going on and how we can understand it and deal with it practically and with regard to the specifics. So down to the specifics, in this case, I'm going to reflect on uh, GB News, uh, the recently instituted right-wing television channel, and uh, the the toxic notions of liberty that uh, are actually being propagated and naturalised, normalised on that particular channel. The first incident I want to consider involves uh, a certain Neil Oliver, who is a a famous television historian who deals with uh, things like the impact of the Vikings on on the UK and similar topics. Uh, Neil Oliver is now a presenter on GB News, which I suppose tells you something about his political orientation. Anyway, recently, maybe two or three days ago, uh, Neil Oliver said the following, and I quote, If my freedom means you might catch COVID from me, then so be it. This, in in the context of uh, a rant or a diatribe in which Oliver uh, declares, I am a free man, blah, blah, blah and tries to make the point that his freedom as a British citizen was purchased by the the loss of life and the bravery of pilots and other combatants in World War II. Uh, This is all completely spurious and not particularly fact-based either. I'm not going to go into that here now. I have dealt with the weaponisation of history in past podcasts uh, and uh, this particular instance of, of that kind of weaponization is dealt with very ably by an episode of Byline TV. I'm not sure who the commentator is, but he does a good job in exposing this, this kind of nonsense to a fact-based analysis. The point I want to underscore is that here, Oliver is claiming for himself the freedom to kill. After all, if somebody contracts COVID through his uh, declared 
insistence on not having to make any allowances for other people around him. They could actually be very seriously ill and have an illness that pretty well blights their lives for a long time into the future or which could even kill them. Now this might sound like rhetoric on my part but but, uh, actually it isn't you know this is the logical consequence of what he's claiming for himself and this is a a right-wing libertarian trope and it is the notion that well freedom should be absolute now I want to investigate this notion in what follows and to show how it's based on a, a completely dodgy analysis and also how it arose historically, what some of its antecedents are, and what its a deeper purpose is politically and economically. But before I go there, I think I'm going to give you another example. And this example is again from GB News. And it's a few remarks made by Nigel Farage. Nigel Farage has been wheeled in by GB News recently, since they're not doing very well with the viewing figures. It isn't going too well at all. And there's a good chance that the thing's just not going to get any traction. And I've certainly got my fingers crossed, because it would be a bit of a disaster if there was a wide viewership of this this stuff and, and, and it gained even greater circulation than it's already got. Now, again, this is a freedom issue because GB News, when it started up, claimed that it was a free speech channel. And uh, free speech is meant to be a very important ingredient of the kind of liberty or the kind of freedom which uh, this right-wing worldview espouses. And not only would it be a free speech channel, according to Andrew Neil's inaugural address, it would also be a fact-based channel. And that it would air a range of views. Now, I'm hoping that I can illustrate that these promises and claims uh, were actually very, very quickly broken, which in turn illustrates that the notion of freedom that they are espousing is purely polemical, it's purely a matter of propaganda, and it's not seriously meant or seriously worked out. And uh, bear with me and I'll try and uncover actually what is entailed. Now, this specific, uh, Nigel Farage, in his programme recently, again a few days ago, uh, made some remarks about the Na- Royal National Lifeboat Institute. And uh, Farage said that, that this institute is allowing itself to be used as a taxi service for illegal immigrants or migrants who, who come across the English Channel in small boats, rubber dinghies and so forth. Now, Farage has had a bee in his bonnet about this for ages. 
and uh, this has been taken up as uh, a, a dog whistle by Pretty Patel and the, the Tories. Farage does a very useful job for them by doing the, the, the part that's not quite respectable and giving the Tories a bit of plausible deniability whilst claiming that the British people have an anxiety or a deep concern about people coming across the channel in boats to escape the the hell of Syria and other places which have been destabilised by Western geopolitical shenanigans. And there's even been a suggestion abroad that the the lifeboat volunteers, if they rescue somebody, a Syrian refugee or asylum seeker or just a person from somewhere who's trying to get to the UK in a boat by crossing the channel in a, a bathtub or a rubber dinghy, and the the, the, life, the brave lifeboat uh, personnel go and rescue those people, fish them out of the sea or whatever, that they are actually breaking the law, or they will be breaking the law, uh, certainly when the new nationality and borders bill uh, 21 uh, finally passes into law. It's now... Uh, uh, at the committee stage, I believe, or about to go to the Lords, having had two readings in the Commons and been passed by substantial majorities. So the suggestion is that uh, you, if you fish a baby out the sea, if it's the wrong kind of baby, that you can get f- life imprisonment because that will be the the penalty for aiding and abetting people smugglers. So you can see the absurdity. You can see how, how the, the government in, in drafting this bill is picking up on this Farage, constant dog whistling, constant stoking of uh, a kind of racism and a xenophobia in, in the British body politic. And, of course, this, is, this provides a very useful external other foreigners who can be used as scapegoats to deflect the uh, the actual misery of the British people at the moment, for, for you know, due to economic collapse, COVID, sort of the consequences of austerity, and so on and so on, to deflect it away from where it, it ought to go. The resentment ought to be aimed at at the oligarchs, at big capital, at the Tory party. But uh, if you can deflect that onto foreigners. It serves a very useful purpose. And we've gone into this, this otherisation many, many times before. Farage is playing that game. It's interesting that during this particular broadcast, Farage also had a little dig at global warming. Now, we know that, like uh, very, very many right-wing arseholes, uh, Farage thinks that global warming is a hoax. And uh, with a, a sort of a, a little giggle to illustrate that he's in the know, that he's the man with the common sense... Uh, we are all being wound up and threatened with doom and gloom uh, now that uh, global warming is very much in the news, particularly as the COP conference is about to happen in Glasgow, and particularly because there have been so many extraordinary weather events over the last months globally. So he's telling us, oh, you've been told the sky's going to fall in. And he's trying to paint that real concern, that concern for something very, very real and factually based 
as a distraction from the real menace, which is these uh, few hundreds of people that come across the channel to escape from utter misery and destitution and danger in the uh, the Middle East, which is in flames, uh, thanks to George Bush, Tony Blair and subsequent leaders of the West. He then goes on to have a dig at uh, the, the government considering some measures against the COVID pandemic, such as vaccine passports, and makes the quip that uh, the government is being influenced by mad scientists. So what we see here is Farage using his considerable influence to try and circulate into the body politic and to insert into the common sense of the people at large the notion that science is untrustworthy, an anti-science message, a conspiracy message of uh, uh, global warming being a hoax. And this is a, a common right-wing trope. It functions to fuel culture wars, which in turn function to divide, which of course is a very important part of the divide and rule strategy that the ruling oligarchs have been pulling for a very long time. Well, so much for GBTV being rooted in uh, fact-based journalism. Here we have Farage attempting to undermine the uh, supreme and mobilisation of facts and data, i.e. science, uh, and just attempting to completely discredit it on at least two fronts. Now, this has been going on for a long time. The, the, the Koch brothers over there in the US, uh, and with global consequences, poured millions and millions and millions of dollars into persuading the American public that indeed climate change is, is a hoax. Uh, remember these guys sit at the head of one of the top oil companies in the world. I should perhaps just as an aside uh, you know, mention that one, one of the two active Koch brothers uh, died, I think last year, David Koch died, Charles Koch, who really is the ideologue in the game, is still alive. There were actually four Koch brothers, but the eldest and David's twin have sort of kept out of the, the politics. But they certainly have been quite successful. 50% thereabouts of the American public think that climate change is a hoax. And of course, uh, Farage is using the playbook over here. And this is advantageous to extremely rich oil oligarchs. It's also politically useful to right-wing arseholes in the divide and rule and confuse strategy, which ensures their continued wealth and power. Now, if we take a little look at GB News, we can see how a lot of this stuff uh, locks together. We can start filling in a little corner of the jigsaw, perhaps, of what's going down out there in the mad world. GB News is funded by foreign hedge funds, mostly, to the tune of some £50 million. 
which gives it a bit of an edge over Navarra Media and Owen Jones and Byline Times and stuff, working on much, much, much smaller budgets and uh, donations from individual uh, listeners and viewers. The front man is Andrew Neil, who's pretty famous from his uh, savage, gotcha uh, style of interviewing on BBC TV, which he's now retired from. And as the uh, chairman of the Spectator group, the Spectator is a sort of posh journal of the right. Uh, Boris Johnson was once an editor of it. It's owned, I think, ultimately by the Barclay brothers, who also own the Telegraph, who are rich uh, billionaire oligarchs who live on a private island. And what we're actually dealing with here is a kind of an outpost of the the right international or the the cabal the international cabal which is operating all of this climate denial uh, uh, propagation of neoliberal ideology uh, vaccine denial covid denial and all 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 of these irrational all of the, all of these irrationalities Brexit, of course, was all part of the same game. And, of course, Nigel Farage, uh, the arch-Brexiteer, now working for GB News, uh, friends with Bannon and Trump. Bannon, of course, arranged Cambridge Analytica's uh, financing by Robert Mercer, an extreme libertarian billionaire, and Mercer's daughter, Rebecca. Uh, Of course, you see, this is all now linking in with With the Spectator Group, which is Andrew Neil, but of course we have Boris Johnson, uh, the Telegraph newspaper, and you, you can trace these links. You can have a lot of fun tracing these links, but the c- conclusion you come to that there is uh, there is indeed a right international, and it shares data, it shares strategy, it shares players, you know, playbooks. It shares playbooks. And there are certain people who act as sort of missionaries within it, you know, or facilitators. And Farage certainly is one, and Steve Bannon certainly is one. And it all works for uh, big, big money, seriously big money. Uh, the books to read on this are um, Mayer's uh, Dark Money and Peter Georgagan's Democracy for Sale and Nancy McLean's Democracy in Chains. These are good, well-researched uh, footnoted, documented, uh, with proper citations, uh, styles of investigation. So, that, so you, can, you, you can give them quite a high degree of trust, I think, even though you read everything critically, I have to say. GB News's self-image, I have to say, is not really based in fact. Uh, Neil's claim that it would be fact-based is contradicted by Farage's anti-science thrust. The claim that this is a free speech channel is undermined completely by the fact that uh, one of the first employees, first commentators, was sacked, basically, for saying that taking the knee was a perfectly sound thing to do as a gesture of anti-racism. So somebody was sacked for being an anti-racist for not being anti-anti-racist which does seem to be the official line of the channel now the channel itself i would say was set up 
by alarm amongst the, the oligarchs and the hedge funds and the disaster capitalists that their uh, print media, which are pretty well all billionaire-owned in the UK, in fact, around the world, are losing circulation rapidly. Uh, the Sun at one point, I don't know, uh, uh, did a pre-tax loss of 200 million. Murdoch has uh, valued it at zero. Young people don't read new newspapers, and the newspapers are fading out rapidly. And they go to the internet for their news. There is also a rise of these channels, I say, like Byline Times, uh, Nevada Media, Owen Jones, etc., which make a reasonable job of investigation and journalism, but which run on a shoestring and which have loyal followings, which are building by the day. So there's some kind of alarm amongst the oligarchs that their ability to control the, the news, to control the information that gets out there, is taking a hit. And so money was thrown at something like a, a kind of a Fox News for Britain kind of idea as a way of influencing the, the popular mood and, and, and as, as I say, actually determining the common sense. And for nudging people in, in a rightward direction, as well as producing distraction and confusion and a divide and rule uh, through via culture wars. Unfortunately for them, they haven't done too well. The case of Farage's dig at the RNLI, a much-loved institution in the UK, a charity, uh, staffed by uh, brave volunteers who go out into terrible seas to rescue people in peril on the sea. And his attempt to start a culture war around the fact that they do their job and rescue people, whoever they might be, if they are in the sea or in trouble on the sea. It really has backfired on him shortly after this Farage outpouring. Uh, Donations to the RNLI went up 2,000%. So clearly the, the British people are not really going to buy into this shit, you know. So yeah, they're not doing very well. Circulation's very poor, you know, or the, the viewing figures are very poor. Production values are terrible. They haven't got their tech side together. And now they're having in desperation to wheel in uh, somebody like F Farage, who's... He's a, he's a one-trick pony as a sort of a journalist or investigator or commentator or whatever he is. It's actually incredibly boring. Now, this uh, right-wing cabal and the general thrust of their worldview, I won't call it a philosophy because it's pretty incoherent. They don't have a coherent philosophy. But they do have a, a worldview and they do have a project. And we need to ask ourselves about the nature of that project. If we dig in there a little bit consider the Cokes and Bannon and Mercer and people like this and of course Johnson and uh, and some of the rhetoric that Farage comes out with and certainly the rhetoric of Neil Oliver all of these things illustrate the use of a concept or a notion of freedom or liberty which forms one of the core components of the the ideology of the rhetoric of the story that these people spread 
and attempt to propagate into the body politic. But I have to say to you, and I've said this before, it's a very peculiar notion of, of, of freedom. And certainly, if you want to see it in its starkest form, you need to read a little James Buchanan. Buchanan was the economist who the Cokes paid to completely capture and determine the teaching of economics in American universities. So by the time Buchanan had finished, every American university economics department was teaching neoliberalism and not teaching Marxism at all. Very, very few places could you get a lecture on Marxism. So a whole generation, this has gone on for decades, a whole generation of economists have been inculcated with uh, Buchanan-style neoliberalism. And freedom is at the core of that, the concept of freedom, or this peculiar concept of freedom, neoliberal freedom. And that is the freedom to exploit. It's the freedom for billionaires to exploit, and this is why the Cokes like it. Cokes are that style of libertarian. Over and against this, if workers unionise, combine their forces, act in accord and in concert, to promote their interests, maybe by going on strike. They are deemed to be infringing the freedom of the owners of the industry, the freedom of the capitalists, the freedom of the oligarchs, the freedom of the super-rich to exploit them. And this is why there's such a strong notion of individuality in this world view. It's individuality over and against people acting together, people banding together in order to pursue common interests. And Buchanan, for instance, got a bee in his bonnet about civil rights, you know, black, the black civil rights movement in, in America, because he said what they were doing is, is using moral arguments to get the government on side so that the government would pass laws and regulations to attenuate the freedom of these super-rich people to conduct their business. A business, incidentally, which is, all, is on the verge of destroying the planet. Because this is mostly big oil money really went off in this direction. So you can see how absolutely fucking noxious it is. These are people who claim in the name of freedom that the pursuit of civil rights is somehow immoral. That's how twisted this worldview is. And you, well, it's also it's the same kind of twist. It's the same kind of depravity, which says that if a lifeboat man rescues a baby from the sea, if that's the wrong kind of baby, if that's a Syrian baby, if that's a brown baby, that that person saving the baby is liable to life imprisonment. Is anybody going to tell? Is anybody going to tell me that that's anything other than utter twisted moral depravity? I will mention at this point that we we, we have planned uh, and are pretty ready to do a podcast that goes into some detail around the Nationality and Borders uh, Bill of 2021 and how dangerous that is. That's a little aside. So, yeah, a promotion of the individual over and against any kind of collective activity to promote the self-interest of groups or to promote social justice. And we see this really uh, extremely exemplified by Oliver, Neil Oliver, claiming basically the freedom to kill.
again, I would characterise this as a case of pure moral depravity. The formative moment for a lot of people, even though the philosophical work, inverted commas, had been done quite a long time prior, was Mrs Thatcher's utterance that there is no such thing as society, only individuals. It didn't really play well uh, as a slogan, that little uh, aphorism of Mrs Thatcher's. And this is why she changed it at a later date. There is no such thing as society, there are only individuals and their families. She had to sort of broaden it out just to give it a little bit of respectability. It was a little bit too sharp, even for a British public that, to be frank, is often quite ready for these kind of messages. All this is a class project. This is how we need to understand it. And try it on, you know, work it through, and you'll see that it fits. It's a class project. It's a project to undermine any kind of self-organisation of the working class or of groups that are disadvantaged through divide-and-rule tactics like racism or anti-feminism or patriarchy to promote their self-interest by combining, by working together, by cooperating, by mounting campaigns as groups, as collectivities. And this is what all this stuff is about. And of course, if we follow it through and follow it through and try and translate it into every kind of situation, you do end up with, with somebody like Neil Oliver popping out of the, the woodwork as a product of this entire uh, movement, and this entire syndrome, who's going to claim for himself the right and the freedom to kill. Now, obviously, this right-wing neoliberal notion of freedom uh, has got a lot to answer for on, on the front of ethics and, and morality. And in that it leads to the kind of depravity we witnessed uh, on GB News recently. But more than that, the, the, the actual analysis of freedom that's put forward is kind of faulty or incoherent, I would say. And it's faulty and incoherent because it actually decontextualizes. It actually attempts to consider freedom as though it was a free-floating abstraction, as a, a pure, absolute notion, when it needs to be considered for what it is, which is, it's a, it is a desideratum, commonly held by human beings, commonly, commonly campaigned for by human beings, people like individual freedom, I certainly do, and I'm sure most of the people listening to this do. But it can't realistically or rationally be decontextualised or divorced from the systems in which it is embedded. What systems is freedom really embedded in? Well, it's embedded in the system of our desires. As I said, you know, most rational people do desire it, even though there are groups of people who desire its opposite, who desire to be enslaved, who desire to be subordinated, 
who desire authority. You could say there's a mechanism of fascism in the deep desire for authority. But very, very many people at all times and in all places desire a degree of individual freedom. It's a good, and I'm prepared to say that it is a good, a very great good. But it cannot exist in some kind of vacuum. It can only exist within the context of people's actual real lived experiences, their real desires. And that is a system. That is the system of the individual psyche. The psyche is a system. It's not a thing. It's not a place. It's a system. Neither can freedom be decontextualised or taken out of its embeddedness in social life, in society and culture. So if Neil Oliver actually kills somebody because he's exercising his freedom, he can expect that society at large, because the event will have happened in the context of society at large, will somehow push back against his activity. There will be some consequence as a result of his freedom being embedded in a particular society with a particular culture and a particular set of mores and a particular legal system and a particular system of, of punishment for behaviours that society at large doesn't approve of. Or maybe a system of revenge, maybe the relatives will come for him of the person that he's murdered. Or maybe if it's a tribe that he exercises his freedom within, that he'll be expelled, sent beyond the bounds, beyond the pile, as you say. De-citizen, you know, just, just uh, sent into exile, excluded, sent to Coventry or whatever. There are many, many ways in which the contextualisation of, of, our, of our actions and our freedoms within a society and within social life can actualise. I mean, historically, if you read anthropology, if you read history, you'll know this to be the case. But also, it's obviously the case simply as a matter of the way these systems work. There are many, many possibilities in why this, this will unfold. But you cannot, cannot exercise an absolute free-floating freedom within any kind of social context. And you cannot live without some sort of social context to contain the living, nor without some psychological context to contain the living. I would suggest to the, uh, uh, Neil Oliver that he reads uh, Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky if he thinks he can really live with so be it, if you die, so be it. So freedom, it's not an absolute and it's not a complete given. It's something that has to take place within a whole kind of a system of, I hate to put it like this, but uh, trade-offs, balances, etc. Freud made this uh, very clear in uh, Civilization and Its Discontents, which is uh, an excellent, insightful book, which I recommend that you read. But we can't enjoy the benefits of civilised living without paying some kind of a price. I mean, the price of civilization and all the benefits of civilization, the security, the 
mobilisation of productive forces so that we don't have too many famines and we don't have too many housing crises. If we want that, all those benefits of civilisation, that there's a bit of a price. And for Freud, the price was repression, repression of the instant gratification of our desires. And that in turn could make some, could, could take a toll on us in the forms of neuroticism and so forth. I mean, whether Freud's exactly right or, or not is another matter, but I would still say it's an extremely interesting thesis and the way it's worked out. And that the essential insight that there is a kind of a price. Actually, the, the three great desiderata of the French Revolution liberty, which is freedom, equality, egalité, and fraternity, actually express some very fundamental desiderata for human beings. I think we can still run with them. We can, we can call that revolution a bourgeois revolution, which of course it certainly was. Uh, at the same time, there's something to be gained by thinking around those particular desiderata. And I think something very smart was come up with there. And I've mentioned this in a previous podcast, if you go back. You know, people traditionally say there's a trade-off between liberty and equality, that a society can choose to emphasise one or the other. I kind of think this isn't necessarily the case, and that is the point of fraternity. If we have fraternal feelings, if we well and truly have internalised the, the value of fraternity, we will, we will realise that our quest for equality might inhibit the liberty of another and we, we might therefore attempt out of our fraternal feelings to, to not let that trade-off between liberty and equality move too far out of balance. Similarly, we will realise that our liberty, our pursuit of liberty can do what uh, neoliberal liberty does, which is actually deprive most people of both liberty and equality, which produces gross inequalities of wealth and power, which is what the world is today as a result of the uh, decades of long working through of the neoliberal project. Now, thankfully, I think running out of steam. And the thing that squares the circle there is fraternity. And I would put it to you that, that liberty, you cannot have the kind of liberty that Neil Oliver claims for himself. And not if you want social living and all the benefits of social living, but neither would you, would you if you understood fraternity, if that was really internal to your being, or if you were a Buddhist and you understood wisdom and compassion. Would you want that kind of liberty? Because you would realise that pursuing that kind of liberty is not liberty at all. It'll cease to be liberty. You'll be like Raskolnikov. You'll be agonising with the guilt that you thought you'd overcome. And there's a sense in which our personal liberty, our individual liberty, does actually depend on the liberty of others. If, I can't, if, if you can't be free, I can't be free either. Now, just a, a last note, this is taking much longer than I thought it would. It's an often a criticism that you see mounted by the, the followers of this far-right uh, cult and the ideas that have been propagated by this far-right cabal. 
that Marxism is somehow anti-liberty. In fact, you know, Marx and Marxism is a swear word now, and they've managed to insert Marxism as a cuss word or a swear word or a damnation word into the common sense of large swathes of the people. You hear people saying it all the time. You know, these terrible Marxists. These are people who've never read Marx, otherwise they agree or disagree with Marx. You can't use Marxism as a swear word if you understand, if you've actually encountered Marx in, in, its, in its kind of depth and, and uh, wondrous attention to detail and, and the depth and, and perspicuity of its analysis. You can't do that. But actually, you know, Marx uh, was very, very concerned with the liberty of the individual, with the freedom of the individual. But he realised that people in general would have no liberty whilst the productive forces of the economy and the wealth that that produced only accrued to one class, to the class that owned industry, basically. Now, Marx was alert, even in the 19th century, to the massive increase in the forces of production brought about by mechanisation, factory production, division of labour and so on. And capitalist mode of production itself could produce far more efficiently than older methods of production, like feudalism and so forth. But he also realised that capitalism couldn't distribute those benefits equally. They would only accrue to, to one class, uh, the ownership class, the bourgeoisie, and they would actually end up, uh, you know, cause the immiseration and the relative inequality in terms of both wealth and power of the mass of people. So uh, th there's a question arises there. Uh, we, have, we now have forces of production. We've come a long way technologically since the 19th century. We have massive forces of production that easily can solve the problem of scarcity. There is no need for anybody to do without food, shelter, a decent life, life with uh, fraternity and community and conviviality and leisure time. But again, we're still in a situation in which none of those goods accrue to the majority of people. We have a massively uh, unequal global economy, massively unequal, with a handful of people owning most of the world's wealth and controlling most of the world's wealth and therefore being very, very powerful and having a big say over our lives and how they pan out. Remember all of these GB news wallers, uh, Farage, Neil Oliver are actually shilling. They're doing the propaganda work for this very small minority of very, very rich and powerful people. So Marx was alert to all this, even in the 19th century, that scarcity could was, was within reach of being overcome. It's certainly now easily within reach of being overcome. No need for anybody to do without. But yet people do do without this is our situation. But what, what Marx saw as the benefit of, of these productive forces, of, if they could be more equitably distributed, is that, that everybody could develop themselves. They would have the time, because it all comes down to leisure time, doesn't it? Automation can free up our time.
and, and Marx had this uh, utopian vision, even though he, he tended to poo-poo uh, a, a utopian socialism. Nevertheless, you know, there's a part of him where he did want to speculate on what we could do with our situation, how, how good we could make it. And he talks about, you know, somebody being like a poet in the afternoon and a gardener in the morning and they go fishing after breakfast and they do a little bit of productive work. And, of course, all of this is is within reach. But this is a story of liberty. This is a story of freedom. But everybody can be free if we organise the forces of production and the technologies that we have, which are massive, in a way that's rather different from the way it's organised now. And that is why we need a revolution, comrades, so we can organise society so that our personal liberty could be maximised. But I would say, you're never going to be free to kill, and nor should you want to be free to kill. Your freedom should entail the freedom of others, which in reality it does. The neoliberal uh, notion of freedom is one that leads to moral depravity of a very high order. Okay, thank you for listening. I hope that made a little bit of sense. Uh, Wash your hands and look after yourselves and make knowledge great again. And we'll be speaking to you soon.